Join me please now in Hebrews 12. We'll read Hebrews chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 to 13. Verses 1 to 13. Our passage will be right in the middle of that, verses 4 to 11, on the subject of discipline for sons. Discipline for sons. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that this word is here in our hands. It is the true and living word. It is the living and abiding word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Will you now sanctify us in the truth? Because your word is truth. Teach us, Lord, what it means to receive your discipline. And may we not shun it. May we not avoid it. May we not despise it. May we, Lord, see your work in our life whenever you discipline us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in our passage, verses 4 to 11, the apostle is teaching us that God disciplines us as sons. We are the sons of God, and therefore, as sons, we are disciplined by God. Now, when we think of this discipline, we have to think of it in the proper context. We belong to him. We're not his enemies anymore. We're not estranged. We're not um, 
foreigners to, to God. We belong to Him. We are united to Him in the person of Christ, His one and only Son. We belong to God. So when we are disciplined by God, according to our passage, we are disciplined by God for our good. He does not have primarily in mind here what God does to punish or deal out retribution consequences to the sinful ways of unbelieving men or the wicked men or the reprobate men, those that do not belong to God. He's not talking in this context primarily about that. So when we hear this word discipline, we need to understand the word discipline not in the way that God treats his enemies, the wicked or the reprobate people of the world. We need to, in this passage, understand the word discipline in the way that he deals with us. Dealing with us, discipline, we might say, is like training. It's a, discipline to us is more bringing things into our life in order to take away unnecessary and even sinful things from our life in order for us to be more righteous, more holy, more godly, more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the way in which he means this word discipline in this passage. Let's look now at verse 4. He t tells us in verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He's telling this to his original audience, but this is also true of all of us. Very, very few of us, in terms of the number of true Christians, very few true Christians actually have to go all the way to the point of being persecuted to death. Persecuted to death. This is what he has in mind. Very few of us have experienced that or been in that situation in which we were in a near-death experience for our faith, not for some crime or not because of some brawl or some argument we had with some other man, not like that, but because of our faith in Christ. Very, very few of us. And he says, notice in verse 4, that we must resist to the point of shedding blood in our striving against sin. Notice that. If we, very, very few of us, have ever been in that predicament, in that situation of having to be put to death because of our faith in Christ, then he says that that, that would be the worst outcome to us in striving against sin. But notice, if that is the worst thing, then everything else, it should be child's play. Everything else should not matter to us. For example, if we have to strive against sin and we have to have less possessions, then have less possessions. Give away some of your things. If we have to strive against sin and we have certain expensive toys in our life as adults and we have to get rid of them because they, we are preoccupied with them, then just get rid of them. Sell them away. Get rid of them. If we have to strive against sin because of our time consumption, the consumption of our time, we spend too much time, hours and hours and hours, hours and days, doing this or that activity, whatever it might be, something that maybe if you just did it for a half an hour or one hour, and it's not a sin because you're not engrossed in it, it's not your master. 
If it's something that takes you hours upon hours or days upon days, and even very expensive to do those kinds of things, you are consumed by it, you're preoccupied by it, it distracts you and deflects you from focus on Christ, then strive against that sin and get rid of it. Or even if it is something like sharing the gospel with someone. We are often afraid, and it's natural to be afraid of sharing the gospel with strangers, with friends, with family, co-workers, whoever it may be, we are often afraid to do that. But what's the worst thing that could happen normally, day by day? They're not going to put us to death immediately. That's not going to happen, at least not in our country, it's not going to happen that way, right? And in many countries around the world, it's not going to happen that way. So what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? We should just explain the gospel. When we have opportunity to share for five seconds or for five minutes or even for five hours, however long the hearer is willing to listen to us, share the gospel. It doesn't matter. We shouldn't be afraid. Strive against the sin of timidity, of, of intimidation. Strive against that sin and share the gospel. Whatever it is, whatever it might be, even if that thing in and of itself is a good thing, get rid of it in order to strive against sin. Because it's not being put to death. We should not be afraid of anyone. We should not think that if we get rid of this or that activity or possession in our life, whatever it might be, if we get rid of it, that somehow, somehow it's going to torment us and, and put us in turmoil and we're going to be haphazard in our life, our Christian life. No. In fact, the more we give up sin, the more we have peace and contentment and assurance and comfort from God. And even joy, as he mentions here in this passage. Even joy, just as Jesus did, who for the joy set before him. And we also can have that same kind of joy because we're not a slave to anyone or to anything, whether it's ourselves or to someone else or something else. We're not a slave. If we are a slave to Christ, that's when we have true peace. That's when we have true freedom. So we must strive against sin, whatever it might be. Verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Forgotten the exhortation. It's easy for us to forget exhortations. Easy for us to forget what God says. Easy for us to forget what we have just read or what we are memorizing even in Scripture. It's very, very easy because of our daily activities, because of the stresses and anxieties of life, the busyness of life, whatever it is, or even when we have challenges, when we have people saying things to us, giving us information contrary to the Word, it's very easy for us to forget what the Word of God says. So what does He do? Because it's easy for them to forget, he reminds them. Because it's easy for us to forget, we need to be reminded. However we can remind ourselves, whether it is with reminders, a note, putting the scriptures in certain places around in our house, in our car, in our office, wherever, whatever we might do to remind ourselves of the things of God. If it's a matter of being with certain individuals, who will remind us of the things of God, we need to hang around those individuals more and avoid those individuals who are going to lead us astray. 
hang around those godly, God-fearing, God-loving Christians who will remind us of the things of God because it's very easy for us to forget. Very easy to forget. If it's somebody who's older than you, somebody more mature in the faith, be with him more often. If it's somebody younger in the faith that you want to help, you want to disciple, you want to encourage, be with somebody with, who's younger in the faith, and that will remind you as well. You can help him remember, you can remember yourself. It works both ways. Help one another not to forget. Constantly, we need to be reminded of the things of God. And now what is it that we have to remember? He says the exhortation. Exhortation. Biblically speaking, and even in this letter, what is an exhortation? What is an exhortation? We don't often use that word in daily English. What is an exhortation? An exhortation in this letter, notice he, he says this, he uses this word again in chapter 13, verse 22. Chapter 13, verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He calls his own letter a brief letter and a word of exhortation. Now, what do we find in this exhortation? We find a few things. Uh, let's say three basic or four basic things in this exhortation, in this letter. We have, in two ways, we have encouragement and we have warnings. If we read this letter, he encourages us now and again. And in between the encouragements about how God gives us comfort, he gives us peace, he gives us his sure word, he, he says that this faith we have is like the anchor of the soul. So he encourages us that way and tells us about the good things that await us in the life to come based on what Christ has done on our behalf. He encourages us that way. But also he warns us. He warns us and he says... If you don't listen to this word, if you walk away from this word, if you disobey this word, if you don't believe this word, then punishment awaits you. Judgment awaits you. Consuming, the consuming fire of God awaits you. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Warnings. So exhortations entail both encouragements and warnings. That's the way he's written this letter. Another way that we can divide this word exhortation is to say there are theological truths here and moral truths here. Theological truths and moral truths in this letter. Has he not been telling us at least for the ten, first 10 chapters, if not for the first 12 chapters, has he not been telling us what the gospel is, who God is, who Christ is, and what God has done on our behalf to save us from our sins. He's been telling us that for 10 to 12 chapters. He's been explaining it in depth. That's a theological part of his exhortation. But then in chapter 13, just one chapter in this letter, chapter 13, verses 1 to 19, 13, 1 to 19, he gives us moral or ethical, practical instructions, how to live our life. 13.1, let love of the brethren continue. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3, remember the prisoners, 
Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Verse 5, let your character be free from the love of money. So forth. Encouragements or exhortations in reference to practical, ethical, moral, daily living. This is what an exhortation is. So the exhortations of Scripture must be on the forefront of our mind. It should be what we think about, what we talk about, how we encourage one another or exhort one another. This is how it should be. Further, back to Hebrews 12, verse 5, he tells us the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, which is addressed to you as sons. Then he quotes Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. After saying, this is an exhortation addressed to you as sons, he quotes from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Now, the book of Proverbs, was the book of Proverbs written to believers or unbelievers? Written to believers. It was written to believers. And these believers are called sons. The believers are called sons, just like in our letter. And for that matter, the Bible is written to believers to encourage them in the faith and to show them how they must believe this faith and live according to this faith and then share this faith with other people. That's what the Bible is. It's written to believers. Now, in verse 5, he further, when he says sons, and then my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, he starts to explain with this analogy of sonship our relationship to God. Why does he use the word son? Why does he not say son and daughter? Sons and daughters in this context. The reason he doesn't is as sons in the Bible and in many cultures, it is sons who receive an inheritance. The son received the inheritance, not the daughter's not initially or primarily, it is the sons. So he addresses us as sons, the whole body of Christ, whether male or female, young or old, we are all in a spiritual sense, figurative sense, called sons because all of us will inherit eternal blessings. All of us have been adopted into the family of God and we have an inheritance. We are fellow heirs with Christ, joint heirs with Christ, and we will receive an eternal kingdom as our inheritance. So, with this exalted position, this privileged, honorable position of being called sons who will receive an inheritance, then we have to ask, if we are sons, spiritual sons, in Christ, all of us, then what is our relationship to our Father? If He is our Father by adoption, He adopted us, then... What is this relationship? How should this relationship look? First, verse 5. Notice, he says, My son, we belong to him. We belong to God, and God owns us, and he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Don't take it lightly. Don't shake it off. Don't, don't fling it away. Don't do anything like that whenever God is disciplining us. Don't even faint 
when God tells us something. Don't faint as though you were outside in the hot sun for eight hours without a cup of water. Don't faint. Don't think of it like that. That's not what God's doing to you. Don't take it lightly and don't faint under the heavy burden that you experience, the burdens of life that you experience that God brings into your life. Don't look at it that way. Why? Because it's coming from the Lord. It's coming from Him, right? And He says, my son, we belong to Him. So if it's coming from the Lord, why should we disdain it? Why should we reject it? Why, would, why should we despise it? If God intentionally, as our loving Father, as our adopted Father, if He brings things into our life and we belong to Him, why should we reject it? Why, why? why should we have such a distaste for it that we start to impugn Him? Why are we going to blame Him? Why are we going to say that I want nothing to do with this anymore? No. If it's coming from Him, we understand the source, then that should answer all of our questions. That should remove all of our doubts because our Father loves us. He loved us so much that He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, to die on the cross for our sins. If He did that to us and joined us to Christ, and now we are in the family of God, and He gives us an eternal inheritance, just as Christ uh, endured the cross, despising the shame because of the joy set before Him, should we not consider the same? We have sin in our life. Jesus had no sin in His life. We have sin in our life that must be shed. He, doesn't, he did not have any sin in His life, yet He endured, and He had joy set before Him. Shouldn't we do the same? Because we belong to the same Father in Christ. Further, verse 6, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He scourges every son He receives. The Lord, when He shows His love for us, He loves us by disciplining us, training us, and even bringing hardships into our life by this discipline, which hardships, he says, are scourges, such as when fathers spank and discipline and set parameters and, and set uh, boundaries for their own sons, when they do that, they're doing it because they love their son. They're doing that because they are receiving their son. They're not doing that because they despise their son. They're doing it because they love their son. Right? That's the way it happens with fathers and their sons. In the same way, God does that to us. When God does that to us, He's doing it in love. He's doing it in kindness. He's doing it in faithfulness. He's doing it because He wants it to work out for our benefit, for our good. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 67. 119.67 Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 
Well, who afflicted him? We'll see in a moment that it was God who afflicted him by whatever means, whether by angels or whether by men, but whether by righteous men or wicked men or by nature, whatever means, it was God who afflicted him. But before he was afflicted, he says, he went astray. But when the affliction, or in Hebrews 12, when the discipline, when the scourge came on him, he stopped going astray because now he keeps the word of God. He obeys the word of God. To keep the word is to obey the word. So now he obeys because he had the affliction first. He, or, Sorry, he had the, the sin first. He went astray first. The affliction came into his life to help him rid him of that sin. And now he obeys God by keeping the word of God. Verse 71, Psalm 119, 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. He says now, categorically, it is good. It's a good thing. Isn't that what Hebrews 12 is teaching us? It's good. It's good for me that I was afflicted. Why? Because we learn the statutes of God, the words of God. We learn them through our afflictions. And these afflictions are good for us. They are necessary for us. 75, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. He acknowledges what he knows. He says, I know Oh Lord, he's saying this in faith, not as a skeptic and not as an unbeliever, not as one who's griping and grumbling about his circumstances, but he says, I know that your judgments are righteous. Whatever you cause to happen in my life, it's righteous. I will never accuse you. I will never impugn you. I will never relegate anything you put in, in my way to the trash heap. I will never do that. I will always consider it righteous, he says. Always righteous. And acknowledge that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, in kindness, in love, as Hebrews 12 tells us. In God's faithfulness, God afflicts us. In God's faithfulness. Who looks at it this way? As unbelievers, we never looked at these things that way, right? We never looked at affliction in and of itself or evil in and of itself in this way. But now as believers, we understand why it is that evils do occur and even evils occur now in our life. Evils or afflictions occur in our life now because God intentionally, you have afflicted me, he says. You, Lord, have afflicted me. God is the ultimate source of all of our afflictions. So if he is the source of our afflictions, the ultimate source, not the intermediate source, not the secondary source, the secondary source might be our own sins, might be someone else's sins, might be some accidents, might be some, some haphazard circumstance, haphazard to us, but not to God. Those things are that way secondarily but primarily, these afflictions are coming from God because he's being faithful to us. And who looks at it that way but a believer? A believer says, in faithfulness, you 
have afflicted me. A believer says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 7. Verse 7. It is Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It is for discipline that you endure. Why is it, after our conversion, that immediately after our conversion, we weren't transferred immediately, sent to heaven immediately? Why did that not happen? Right after our conversion. Why, after our conversion, did we not become 100% perfect people? Why, after our conversion, were we 100% immune to all the evils of the world? Why did any of those things not happen to us? Because of verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God intends for endurance to be in us, to be manifested in us, and for him to have that endurance, discipline is a factor in our endurance. He keeps us here for the purpose of disciplining us to have us endure until the end. Matthew 24, 13. He who endures until the end shall be saved. He causes us to live in this world in order to purge us, in order to purify us, in order to sanctify us, to make us holy in this world. Speaking of purging, there is no purgation, there's no purging in a place after this world in purgatory. That belief is a false belief that does not happen. Our purging, our purgation, it happens now. We are purified now during our temporary earthly life until we meet Christ face to face. That is why we are still here. And then, since we are still here, God deals with you, he says, as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Right? He treats us as sons, sons who need discipline. And he says, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We know that to be the case, that sons are disciplined by their fathers, their earthly fathers. That's the nature of things. That's the way it happens. Now, of course, he's assuming here, we see by implication, he's assuming that you have the average earthly father. Because we do know that there are certain fathers, earthly fathers, who don't do anything. Who don't do anything. They're too busy in their sins, and they don't do anything. We know that to be the case. But he's not illustrating with that. He's illustrating with what typically happens in the vast majority of cases. And this happens not only in Christian families, true Christian families, but nominal Christian families, it happens in Muslim families, in atheistic families, and it happens in Hindu and Buddhist families, that fathers, to some degree, one degree or another, discipline their sons. Right? Everybody knows that. So if we belong to God, why will He not discipline us? Certainly He will. Verse 8. How certain do we know? Verse 8. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
If we don't have any discipline, he's saying we've already become a partaker of some discipline, so we have this knowledge, this fact, that since we have experienced some of the hardships that God has brought into our life as believers, we can know we belong to Him. We can know we belong to Him. But who does not belong to Him? Those who are illegitimate children and not sons. Illegitimate. Now we have to explain. This is not a word also that we use in our common culture these days. This word has been thrown out of our common vocabulary for the past few decades. And this has been done on purpose. This word illegitimate. And if you are using the King James Version, it's the word bastard. That too, that word bastard is not used today. This one is not used, let alone bastard. Hardly anybody uses that word today to describe an illegitimate child. And who is an illegitimate or bastard child? Born out of wedlock. When man and woman come together and they have children and they're not married, those children are considered illegitimate in the sight of God and even in the laws of the land, to the extent that those laws conform to the laws of God. They are considered illegitimate or illicit children. They are not under the law, the laws of husband and wife. They are called illegitimate for that reason, and also bastard for that reason, because they are not in the wholesome, proper union of husband and wife in marriage. Now, when you think of it that way, now understanding what the Bible means, isn't it the case that whenever there are families and there is a bastard or illegitimate child in that family, doesn't that child get less attention? Isn't that child less respected? Isn't that child less disciplined? Don't the parents, or especially the one who's not the biological parent of that child, isn't there less accountability? That one parent often does not treat that child in the proper way? Doesn't that what, uh, isn't that what goes on? Yes, that's what goes on. That's what he's saying here. That's typically what goes on. Not absolutely in 100% of the cases, but typically that's what happens. The illegitimate children don't receive discipline at least not in, to the extent compared to the natural children who are legitimate children in the right way, born in the right way. So, if we have discipline, if we have hardships, if we have persecutions coming into our life because of our faith, this should give us assurance that we belong to Him. It gives us assurance that we belong to Him. Acts 14.22 Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's a must, a necessity, an obligation. If we belong to Him as sons, there will be many tribulations and then we enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3 Verse 12, 2 Timothy 3.12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This will happen to us, and they happen to us, these things happen to us, because God disciplines us. He uses these tribulations or persecutions in order to purify us from our sins that we might reject sin more and more and conform ourselves to the image of Christ. Now, verse 9, Hebrews 12 and verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 9, he further illustrates this comparison between our earthly fathers and heavenly father, our heavenly adopted father. We had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Mind you, when we were 5, 10, and 15, 20 years old, we did not respect them as much as we did when we were 30, 40, 50 years old. At the time we were disciplined, we did not respect them as much as we did later in life. Later in life, we did respect them. And so if we do respect them, however much we did when we were 10 years old, and then however much we do when we're 20, 30, 40 years old, whatever, that is the, um, whatever respect we have given them, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Shouldn't we much more shouldn't we much more be subject to obey the Father of spirits and live? Why? Because our earthly fathers gave us our natural earthly life, right? And so we should have respect for them for that reason. But our heavenly Father, our adopted Father, the Father of spirits, He's the one who created our inner being. He's the one who created our spirits. He's the one who created our ability to commune with Him. He's the one that transformed our spirits that were evil and depraved, and then He enlivened us. He gave us new hope. He gave us a new heart. He did this to us, and this will remain in us forever and ever. The unseen world is more valuable than the seen world, correct? The intangible world is more important than the tangible world. In this way, if our Heavenly Father is the one who has given us our spirits and who sustains our spirits, who renews our spirits and gives us life in our spirits, this life that is eternal life, isn't it more important to take whatever He gives us as discipline? Whatever He teaches us, whatever He brings our way, do not despise them. Do not despise them. Instead, say, this is from God. Now I will endure. I will see His will in this situation. I will seek to conduct my life according to His word throughout this trial, throughout this tribulation, throughout this persecution. I will seek to see what His will is for my life, what He's teaching me through this difficulty because it's the Father of Spirits, and life is the consequence. Verse 10, For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed the best to them, 
but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. They disciplined us for a short time. However long we lived under their charge, under their leadership, under their fatherhood, in the household, that was just for a few years. Let's say on average 20 years. We were in the house for 20 years, and then after that we moved out of the house, and we did not have the immediate day-by-day discipline from our earthly fathers. And they did it as seemed best to them. There we know he means that not all earthly fathers are perfect. No earthly father is perfect, and some do it better than others, but all of them, in one degree or another, discipline their own children, right? And they do it as seems best to them. They don't do it perfectly. They fail, and sometimes what is right in their eyes may not actually be right in the sight of God, but whatever the case, they did according to their finite abilities, their weak and finite abilities. But God's not that way. He's God Almighty. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. No one teaches him anything. No one is his counselor. No one is going to teach his Holy Spirit what to say and what to do, right? God's not that way. So, he, knowing who he is and knowing that he does it for our good. Our earthly fathers did it for our good because they knew if we did not have training and discipline in our life, that it would lead to misery and chaos in our life later on. If we don't learn to obey and respect authority at age 5 and 10, we're not going to do it when we're 20 and 30. We're going to disobey our employers. We're going to disobey our, 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 um, our superiors in the military, wherever, whatever environment we are in, we're going to disobey. So he's saying here, they did it for our good. God does it for our good. God's good is eternal good eternal good, that we may share His holiness. Holiness is a requirement. Holiness is necessary, and holiness is what God has that He gives to us. He gives to us His holiness progressively and gradually. He first gives it to us upon our conversion because Christ's righteousness is reckoned to us. And then from that point onward, He makes us more and more holy, more and more godly, more and more uh, fruit-bearing in our life until we meet Christ face to face. This is what he does on our behalf. He grants us the privilege of obtaining the moral perfection that he has. We don't have it now. We are better than we used to be, but we still have a long way to go. And it's not until we meet him. And notice how much of a requirement this is. This requirement, verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification, a synonym for holiness. Sanctification. Without the sanctification that we should be pursuing, no one will see the Lord. This is a sure sign of a believer that he desires to know the will of God. He desires to know the word of God. He desires to know why God brought certain things into his life, why these afflictions, why these um, circumstances of discipline, 
Why is it that this persecution is occurring? Why is it that these uncertainties are here in my life? Why is it that people are not always accepting what I say? Why? Right here. To teach us to pursue sanctification because this sanctification is necessary to see the Lord. We will never see Him if we do not have that initial sanctification by being justified by faith in Christ. And then the daily sanctification throughout our life gradually becoming more and more holy. And then the final sanctification when 100% we will see Him face to face without any sin. Without any sin. We have a foretaste of it now. Whenever we have victory over sin, it causes us to rejoice. It causes us to have comfort and assurance and peace before God because we know He's working in our life. We know His power is manifested in our life. We know He's speaking to us by His Spirit and by His Word. We belong to Him. And that's what He wants. He wants us to have this kind of sharing, participation in His holiness. Verse 11. Verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. For the moment, the discipline seems not to be joyful. Yes, when some trial happens, when some hardship initially happens, we are scattered in our thoughts. We are stressed. We have anxiety. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle it. So there's no joy. But if you have been trained by it, it's sorrowful, right? If, after the initial onslaught, if you have been trained by it, when those same things happen, when those similar things happen, happen to you, we're trained by it, then we know better how to deal with it. Then we can say with the apostles that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And we won't be disheartened by it. We won't turn away. We won't lessen our enthusiasm for the things of God. In fact, the opposite will happen. We will have joy. The joy of the Lord will be our strength. And we know that it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It yields this peaceful fruit. In the midst of the turmoil, there is no peace. Or initially, there is no peace. Unless you know, by training, how to handle it. Then, when a similar or same circumstance or trial happens, then you've got composure. You've got peace. You know what to do. You're not going to be disheartened. You're not going to be frantic. You're, you're not going to bite your nails or knock your knees. Nothing like that's going to happen. You'll be calm and peaceful and able to deal with it. That will happen in this life, and it will yield the full peace and perfection in the life to come. This is what it yields. It yields this kind of fruit. This is the fruit of righteousness. I would like to illustrate this with a few passages in James. So just turn a page or two in your Bible to the book of James, chapter 1. The necessity of being trained this way, enduring this way, to produce 
the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Notice James chapter 1, James 1, verse 2. 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of our faith produces endurance. And then endurance will have its perfect result, will become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James chapter 1, verse 12, James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We are blessed because we persevere under trial. Once we are approved, the crown of life is what we will receive. The Lord has promised this because we love him. Because we love him. Chapter 3, James chapter 3, 313. 313. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When we pursue peace, peace with God and peace with one another, as he told us in Hebrews 12, 14, this fruit is righteousness. That's why Hebrews 12, 11 says, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And finally, chapter 5, James 5, 7. James 5 and verse 7. We'll read verses 7 to 11. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful." Seven says to be patient. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Farmers are patient. If farmers are patient for their crops, should we not be patient for the Lord to receive his crop? We are the wheat. He'll separate the wheat from the tares when he returns. So let's be patient. Strengthen our hearts. 
The coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't sin by complaining. Don't sin by complaining towards one another. Wait for the judge to come and take care of things. Verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, the true prophets who spoke the word of God. We count those blessed who endured. And then he says, Job is an example of this. Job had everything going his way. And then everything was taken away from him, except his own life and his wife. And then what happened? The Lord restored him. The Lord encouraged him. He had to, he had to be purged. He had to be purified. He had to have some discipline in his life for God to teach him some things. And just as Job, as a righteous man and a wealthy man and healthy man, had those afflictions come upon him, it will happen to us too. When we are righteous and healthy and wealthy, God may take those things away from us temporarily and then restore us. Restore us so that we learn that God's dealings are full of compassion and merciful. So will we endure? Will we take what God brings our way, whatever it is, and treat it as though our Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father, who has promised us an eternal inheritance, that we will take things coming our way in that vein, in that light. Take it that way, endure, trust Him, trust His Word, depend on Him, and don't be distracted, don't be anxious, and never, never turn away from the faith. Endure until the very end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as your sons, adopted into your family by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, this God that we worship, we pray, Lord, that you will be front and center in our life, that we will understand whatever you bring to us is for our good and it is because you love us. In faithfulness, you afflict us. Teach us to understand all of our circumstances, all of our trials this way. And may we, Lord, share your holiness. May we see the Lord. May we enjoy that crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In Christ's name, amen.